Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm your host, Daniel Pink, talking with you from the Clean Cuts Miles Davis studio here at Broadcast House in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being one of the tens of thousands of people around the world listening on the web or through iTunes. Think for a moment what you did yesterday. Chances are you ate something. You also probably moved around a little bit, and unless you're a masochist, you also slept, at least a little. Eat, move, sleep. That's what we do. It's also the title of a hot new book, and the topic of this edition of Office Hours. Our guest is Tom Rath, who, by most estimations, is really the best-selling nonfiction writer of the last decade. Working at Gallup, he's produced a string of blockbusters. How Full Is Your Bucket, Strengths-Based Leadership, Well-Being, and, of course, Strengths Finder 2.0, which has been a cornerstone of the strength movement and the bane of my life as I look up to it on the business bestseller list. Now he's out with a new book, Eat, Move, Sleep, Why Small Choices Make a Big Difference, that I predict will be another blockbuster, Tom has plumbed the science and given us an array of evidence-based tips on how to do those three things better and smarter, all in the name of living a healthier, more productive life. And, you know, the stakes are huge. He cites research showing that 90% of us could live to the age of 90 simply with some simple changes in the choices we make in our lifestyle. We're lucky to have him here in the studio to tell us more. Tom Rath, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you and your audience here. Yeah. So let me explain to you and the audience how Office Hours works. On each program, we open things up so that listeners around the world can ask our guests questions they've submitted about work, business, life, careers, education, politics, and anything else. Uh, if you've got questions, we have answers. And when we don't, we always make something up. As we like to say, this program is car talk for the human engine. But uh, as always, I get to go first and talk to our guests for a while at the outset. So um, let's begin. So Tom, first of all, the book is Eat, Move, Sleep, um, Why Small Choices Make a Big Difference. It's a fascinating and eminently practical book. But this book, unlike your previous ones, has a little bit of a, a kind of a personal backstory to it. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. You know, the one thing I kind of opened the book with and talk about a lot more than I've been comfortable speaking about in uh, previous books I've worked on is that uh, when I was about 16 years old, I was diagnosed with a very rare genetic disorder that um, at the time I knew that I was having trouble seeing and eye problems. And um, I eventually ended up losing all my vision in one eye because of the cancerous tumors this disorder creates. And as another product of this rare disorder, I found out that I was likely to have uh, cancer in my kidneys and pancreas mm. and uh, brain and spine, a lot of areas. And so it was something that was obviously tough to deal with at a young age at that time, but it led me to start spending almost all of my spare time collecting little bits of research about what I could do to essentially extend my odds of living a little bit longer. And that's all worked out very well for me over the last two decades. And then more recently, uh, over the last 10 years, I've spent quite a bit of time trying to pull that research together for people I am friends with, work with, care mm -hmm. about, who have been battling heart disease and cancer in particular. And so roughly a year ago, I uh, I lost three friends and colleagues who were about my age. Mm. Uh, and far, tell us how old you are. I'm 37 years uh -huh. old. So they were far too young, lost sure. a few colleagues Absolutely. and friends to heart disease and cancer, and decided that it was time to take a step back and try and pull all that research together for the sake of helping some of the people I cared about most. Mm -hmm. And in this research, you're, 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 are you reading medical journals? Are you reading the popular press? Or tell me how you're doing, how you're collecting all that stuff. Sure. Yeah, I'm kind of a researcher by heart. Yeah. So most of it's going through medical journals and abstracts that I comb through every weekend and going into more depth on specific topics to figure out what are all the things that we can do from diet to exercise to sleep to um, real conventional medical treatments in order to help people uh, live a little bit longer, but maybe more importantly, have more energy and enjoyment on a daily basis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you've and what this book is this book is eat move the book is eat move sleep. What you've done is you've distilled this research into thirty chapters that essentially represent uh, a month, you know, a chapter a month of things that you can do. And you give it's a very well organized book. You have a some advice on in each chapter on how to eat better, advice on each chapter on how to move 
more be more active, essentially, and advice on sleep and the importance. So we're going to talk a lot about these things. Um, but I want to go straight to what I thought was, and I've talked about this with other people, too, what I think is this, one of the stunners in this book. Okay, and I want to read, I want to quote you from page 31 of Eat, Move, Sleep. It's a little like a deposition here. So I'll quote you from page 31 of Eat, Move, Sleep. Um, here's what Tom Rath, our guest, writes. Sitting is the most underrated health threat of modern times. Sitting more than six hours a day greatly increases your risk of an early death. What's wrong with sitting? You know, I've underestimated the impact of sitting myself yeah. for many, many years. And, you know, it, what I didn't realize until a lot of real high-quality, in-depth longitudinal research with hundreds of thousands of people emerged in the last few years is that even if I wake up every morning and work out for a full hour and I do that six days out of the week, which is kind of the highest-end recommendation, that absolutely does not counteract sitting on my rear end for eight hours a day. That's what I can't get over. I mean, it's like we, we know that exercise is, is great for us and we all want to exercise, but you're saying that, that, that exercise alone isn't sufficient to overcome the, the in a metaphorical sense, the toxicity of sitting. What, what, what does sitting do to us? What's so bad about it? You know, the, I mean, the issues are when you think about it just at, a, at more of a momentary level, the minute you sit down, the, your, your leg muscles start to shut off mm. and everything starts to slow down inside your body. And not only is that a problem for your long-term health, it's also a problem for your creativity and energy mm. later on in the day and throughout the afternoon. And I might have guessed that if you were trying to work while you're moving, I, I wrote this entire book on a treadmill as part of this experiment. Interesting. Uh -huh. And But even if you just get up every 20 minutes throughout the day, I might have thought that was distracting to focus and concentration in the modern workplace. It's not. You it, There have been some real uh, good studies showing how if you take regular and frequent breaks, you have more energy, better creative thought, and so forth. So it's a... I think it's a huge challenge because if you think about what's happened over the last 50 years, we've essentially engineered activity out of our lives Precisely. on a daily basis. So we, we make sure that whatever we need is one click away. Amazon can drop it off on my doorstep and I can grab something in a desk drawer and have a snack right away instead of getting up to do something. And so we almost have an obligation, not only as individuals, but employers need mm -hmm. to think about this in a serious way, that we have to figure out how do we engineer activity back into our daily lives and work. Mm -hmm. And does that suggest changes in the architecture of uh, companies, the internal architecture of companies? Do you think about the typical white-collar company, it's a sea of cubicles and everybody has a chair and you go in there and everybody is stationary? I mean, what can you do? I mean, if, if, if sitting has such a deleterious effect on our on our health, it seems like there's kind of a public health issue here in fashioning companies, fashioning organizations that encourage or promote people to move more. Is there, I mean, have you seen examples of any institution doing something on this front? You know, I've seen at the organizational level, I have seen employers do a pretty good job of making options available to employees where they have desks where they can sit and stand and alternate uh -huh. back and forth. There are a lot of big employers who, and small ones alike, who have different workstations where people can work and walk at the same time. So I, I just talked to a guy, a friend of mine a few days ago, who he did all of his online compliance training and while he was on a walking station hmm. in his office, and they have five or ten that employees can kind of sign up and rotate and do conference calls or, at, or respond to their email each morning while they're walking at the same time. It was kind of, I mentioned the experiment where I uh, tried writing this book yeah. while I was uh, walking the whole time on my treadmill. I just went to Home Depot and put a board over my treadmill and gave it a shot. And as long as I was hmm. between 1.5 and 2 miles an hour, it's a relatively slow pace, yeah. I was able to type and edit and talk on the phone really? and do everything with maybe with a little bit more energy and vigor than I would if I was sitting throughout the day where you, you kind of have that afternoon lull where you're out of energy. Yeah, yeah. And do you have a sense, I, I see that you're um, on, on this on this uh, topic of, of moving more, I see you have a a wristband. I don't. I can't tell what quite what brand it is. I I have. I'm wearing here a Jawbone Upband mm -hmm. to track my steps. Um, uh, you have a sense of when you write on a treadmill, how much ground are you covering in the course of that period? Yeah, you know, I I started measuring with. I I use one of these Fitbit wristbands, Fitbit, and I've uh -huh. been I've been measuring that using a Fitbit for about four years now. When I first started, I was at about five thousand steps a day, which is 
about where the average American is. Yeah. Um, and then Which is way too low. Way too low. The average Australian is closer to 10,000, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after a few years without doing any walking when I worked, I was closer to 10,000 a day, and I made sure to hit the minimum of 10,000. When I'm in my home office walking and writing, I average 25 to 30,000 steps a day. Wow. Which is a whole different level and get a lot more words per day done. So, really? Um, and that's one, I think that's one of the things that we have a big opportunity around right mm-hmm. now is it's kind of a golden era of measurement devices yeah. that are relatively inexpensive, not that intrusive. They sync up with your phone, they give you reports every day. You can see how many steps you took versus your spouse or friend or colleague. And I'm really impressed by how many people I run into that are doing something to measure their steps on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. now. And I, I'm cautiously optimistic that could help people in workplaces in particular to turn this around a little bit. Yeah. Um, it also goes to another point you make in the, in, in the book, um, which is you write that the, the best performers work in bursts and take frequent Breaks. That's that surprised me because I like to. I, I mean, I know the important you got to take breaks, but for mm-hmm. me, I think well, you got to concentrate for a certain amount of time in order to get anything done. But you're, but you're kind of pushing back on that based on the research. You know, my my own belief was kind of similar to what you're talking about, where I figured first thing in the morning, if I wake up and have a cup of coffee and spend two hours completely focused in on something with no distractions, that's the best case scenario for me. But the more I studied some of this research and kind of experimented and tried it out myself. I could see how those little breaks, even within a focused task, uh, give you a little bit of rejuvenation in the span of an hour or two. Mm-hmm. And rejuvenation that allows you to be more productive or more creative. Or right. And, but you don't find it distracting to take that. Like, that is, I, I don't know. I mean, may, maybe I'm operating on a mythology. To me, it's like sustained attention over a decent amount of time is the secret. And anything that interrupts that is going to impair your performance. I think it can be distracting in the form of a of a conversation in many cases. If you're mm. if you're face to face and sitting with someone there's and maybe that again is just the conventional wisdom where I'm so used to sitting down and having a face to face conversation where it it would be a sign that you're not paying attention if you get up and move around and so forth. So that's I see what you're saying. Right. Yeah. So I mean I think in that situation it's absolutely true, but otherwise it does help to have some of those frequent breaks. We're, uh, you're listening to Office Hours. Our guest is Tom Rath. He's the author of Strength Finders 2.0, uh, How Full Is Your Bucket, other blockbuster book. His new book, which we're talking about right now, is called Eat, Move, Sleep, Why Small Choices Make a Big Difference. And we've been talking about the evils of sitting, the, the health consequences of sitting all the time. So let's get pragmatic. And one of the things I really like about this book is that it's just – it is, a, it is a cornucopia of takeaways, a cornucopia of things that you can do in your individual life to be a little bit better, be a little bit healthier. So let's talk about the move part. What are some specific things that people can do? We talked about taking more frequent breaks to get a little bit more walking activity in their day-to-day lives. Yeah, you know, I think one thing that uh, people can do in most situations is figure out ways where they can build a little activity into their daily routine, um, whether it's in a social context, uh, going on a walk with a friend mm-hmm. in the morning or the evening, taking a walking meeting. One of the great Steve Jobs quotes I found was um, he, someone asked him why he always required these executives to go on walks in his neighborhood when everyone to have a meeting. He said, I make them go on walking meetings because I think better when I'm walking. Interesting. And you could see how it, it, it blends that into it. You know, living in a city here in D.C., I've tried to force myself to walk to the second closest Starbucks or the second closest location of a lunch place that I go to. Interesting. And build those little shortcuts in. You know, it's I've seen some great uh, work and research from uh, Tony Schwartz, who focuses a lot on sure. how we don't take enough of a break in the middle of a day and kind of right. restore ourselves around lunch. And if nothing else, that lunch hour is a great reminder to say it's a perfect time to blend social interaction and getting some activity and to force yourself to come back later in the day uh, quite a bit with, with in a very different place mentally. Because one of the things I've looked at in some of the research that we did at Gallup is people get a big surge of energy in terms of their workplace engagement in the morning, and then it comes back a little bit at lunch, but it really tapers off in the afternoon. Uh-huh. And anything we can do to boost our energy right. even a bit in the afternoon should make a big difference. Is that a natural cycle of how our, our brain works and the, and the mix of serotonin and dopamine and the other kinds of neurotransmitters in our brain? 
part of it. I yeah. mean, part of it gets back into the uh, kind of that mixture of diet and moving and yeah, exercise yeah, yeah. because, I mean, I, I know personally, and you can see this in all the research, that if I go out and have a cheeseburger and a milkshake for lunch tomorrow, mm-hmm. I will have a high-fat hangover that right, afternoon exactly. and be falling asleep at my desk inevitably. Mm-hmm. So the lesson there is don't do that. I got to say, I think that walking, well, I had a walk, you know, I'll be your, I'll be your hallelujah chorus here for a moment. I had a uh, walking meeting uh, yesterday. Uh, somebody, I work out of my house. I have a Pink Ink World headquarters is the garage behind my house. And, and um, somebody came over to meet with me and I said, and I was preparing for this interview and I said, okay, we got to have a walking meeting. And, we, you know, we ended up walking, I don't know, maybe I think I, like 6,000 steps. Mm-hmm. Uh, 6,000 steps. It was about an hour, you know, uh, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. Uh, ended up logging those steps that we didn't, um, that I probably wouldn't have had before. And it was as productive a conversation as it would have mm-hmm. been, probably more so than if we had been sitting slumped in our in our seats. So that's the move part of eat, move, sleep. Um, let's talk a little bit about, um, let's talk a little bit about eating. I think there's some interesting eating tips here. And I just want to give you back one of your you know, great provocations in here. Okay, so here, here, here's five words from Eat, Move, Sleep. Sugar is the next nicotine. What do you mean by that? You know, it's interesting. As, as I study what's happened over the last 25 to 50 years in terms of the evolution of food and products, yeah. essentially what you've seen is that we, we've moved towards, it fits in with the theme we were talking about with convenience and yeah. how, that's not only has that been a problem for our movement, it's been as prob- arguably a bigger problem for the way we eat where um, anything that allows us to have a condensed meal that fills us up within five minutes with as little effort as possible to prepare it is always a better thing, right? Right, right. And so that's where if you look at what's in almost any product, whether it's an energy drink, mm-hmm. a protein bar, uh, or something you pick up at a fast food restaurant, even when we try and do all the right things, and I went through this myself, and you try and eat things that are lower in fat and maybe mm-hmm, not fried mm-hmm, foods and so forth, mm-hmm. essentially the root ingredient of almost all packaged foods is sugar or refined carbohydrates, which essentially turn into sugar when they hit the bloodstream. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's so easy to miss how much sugar is loaded into just little things yeah. that we eat or drink yeah. on a day-to-day basis. I was... Um, talking to a friend the other day and they were telling me how they love to eat the healthy uh, dried apricots all the time and just eat a cup of those for health. And and I mentioned, you know, you know do you have any <laughs> idea that that's about 80 grams of sugar, whereas a candy bar has 20 grams of sugar? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you don't think about the way that's embedded in right. all these little things that even sound healthy on the surface so often. So, I, I mean, I, I was uh, talking to someone recently and uh, we were looking at the impact that has not only in the U.S. but on a global basis. Mm. Until we start to rein in the amount of sugar that's in all the products that are cooked and consumed, Mm -hmm. that's arguably, I would argue it's probably a bigger public health problem than smoking is today because we've begun to cut that back a little bit. Right. And so and, and the deleterious effects of sugar are on, uh, it leads to obesity or diabetes or, well, I mean, take, le- take yeah, it out one I, step. I yeah. mean, it leads right to... I, Di- I call it just diabetes, which is kind mm-hmm. of diabetes that's induced by obesity, right, which, right. Um, I mean, that right now is probably our greatest export as a country when you look at what we're producing and sending out to the rest of the world. It's not iPods or iPads. It's that disease burden we're creating. And it's really, I mean, as we see here in the U.S., it's really unsustainable and something mm. that we do need to rein in. And sugar is, if you narrow it down to one ingredient, sugar and even some of the sugar substitutes are probably at the root of that. When, uh-huh. when I've I've done a lot of my own research, obviously about how to prevent cancer. Yeah. And well, I think one researcher who I quote in the book described uh, sugar as candy for cancer cells, which is a pretty good way of thinking about the way um, cancer cells need that to kind of survive and grow. And obviously, sugar directly feeds uh, type two diabetes and mm-hmm, so forth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, let's go. Let's so so sugar is sugar is as. Um, uh, troublesome, potentially harmful as as nicotine. And I should I should yeah. probably qualify that with added sugar. I yeah, mean, the sugars that we naturally get in fruits that you sure. eat in a whole form, those don't have anywhere near as much, if any, adverse impact from all the research I've read. It's really all those added sugars. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting you say that because um, um, uh, on a previous episode of Office Hours, we talked to the founders of Honest Tea, and one of what one of the things that they did is they. 
um, said, we want to have drinks that have far less sugar, that are just a tad mm-hmm. sweet. And they actually moved to sweetening some of their beverages with natural fruit juice. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to get one kind of other way to think about this, and then we'll talk about what listeners can do to do things a little bit better. You say that um, you, know, you look at any product uh, on, the, on the store shelf, or even in certain, certain jurisdictions when you go to a quick service restaurant, a McDonald's, a Starbucks, or whatever, it'll tell you how many calories are in that blueberry muffin, how many calories are in that cheeseburger. And, and you say, based on your research here, that calories aren't quite what matter the most. What does matter? Calories are a decent measure of just quantity or consumption. Um, I don't think calories are a very good measure of quality. Mm. And so if you think about what's in a given serving um, on a package or on a menu that you're looking at, uh, one of the things I often look to is, I mean, obviously anything with the level of sugars as close to zero as possible. So Mm -hmm. you get down to... Um, I mean, anything with more than 10 grams of sugar in a single serving, I would just stay away from completely. Right, okay. And then once you think beyond sugars about what's on that label, uh, most packaged products have a ratio of about 10 carbohydrates, 10 grams for every one gram of protein. And the right foods to be eating have more of an even balance. So A one-to-one ratio. One-to-one ratio. So, so most that of the ratio I look is, for a one-to-one. Is... Seriously out of whack. That if, one, if you right. want, if the aspiration is a one-to-one ratio between carbohydrates and protein, a ten-to-one ratio is kind of alarming. Absolutely, right. So, give us a sense of what, what what sorts of foods or what kinds of things can we do to to move to that one-to-one ratio? Sure. You know, most I think most um, natural foods and products you get. So, I eat a lot of avocado. Um, one of my favorite uh, Indian dishes is palak paneer. With, it's a oh, sure. spinach with yeah. some cheese. And yeah, that, yeah. That, that has a pretty even ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, and the key is really to try and find things that are at least below that a 5 to 1. So set 5 to 1 is kind of that upper limit. Um, I eat a lot of not only vegetables but nuts and fish, which many of those foods actually have more grams of protein than carbohydrates mm. in a given serving. So if you eat a few of those things, it really balances I out see. a whole plate or a broader meal. And, you know, the I suppose if you're at a restaurant – the easiest offenders on having a very high ratio of carbs or proteins are just the basket of bread you get up Absolutely. front. Absolutely. Right? So you, are, you are deeply opposed to bread. If I you know can that just, from this book. If you can just ditch the bread in a given meal, it often counterbalances a really good meal. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and you also say in, in some ways that the butter is healthier than the bread. Right. That's, that's, <laughs> a, that's a quote from yeah. a, a medical researcher uh-huh. that uh, we kind of cited some of his research in the book. But it, it's interesting how... Um, by the way, I, the, between us on this call here, of course, <laughs> um, I, I said that to my mother-in-law the other day. I'm like, well, you know, the butter might be as good as the bread. She's like, oh, good. I can't wait to put more butter on my bread. There you go. <laughs> That's right. not quite the point. Right. Of it, but, um, yeah, it, it's interesting how we don't think about slapping two pieces of bread around about anything that we eat, right? Yeah. And if you just, I mean, if you just pull that out of the equation, it usually makes a meal a much better uh, kind of overall net positive, as I talk about in the book. So, so pragmatically, somebody listening to this, uh, maybe they are listening to this. Po- they should be listening to that podcast while they're walking around during their lunch hour. But suppose that they're sitting at their desk eating their eating their sandwich. What should should they take off the top piece of bread on the sandwich? Is that something that people should start doing? That's you know a lot of times. I mean, when I'm racing through an airport for the sake of convenience, I don't have time to sit down and eat a salad. Yeah. I'll grab a sandwich or something like that and peel away as much of the bread as I can but still eat it in a right. convenient manner. So, I mean, I mean, anything you can do to minimize it. We've just essentially gone over the top in terms of the amount we consume. And the real easy one is if you order a salad at a restaurant and they bring you a big piece of bread with it, which is usually about as much bread as you get if you order a sandwich, right. just forget that part. Okay. All right, so 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 um, we're gonna we're gonna reduce the amount of of bread that we we intake in order to be healthier. You're listening to Office Hours. Our guest is Tom Rath. You know him from Strengths Finders 2.0, Strengths Based Leadership, Well Being. How full is your bucket? His new book is Eat, Move, Sleep: Why Small Choices Make a Big Difference. We're talking about how to move more. Uh, eat better. We're going to talk about sleep here in a moment, but let's stick with eating here. Here's 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 something that I found really surprising. In fact, n- no joke. We were talking about this at the at the Pink Family dinner table. Um, the color of your plate, you cite research. The color of your plate can affect how much you eat. What? You know, it's 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 amazing when you get into some of the uh, 
what I'm interested in is kind of the behavioral research around eating in particular yeah. and how um, little things change our daily behaviors and what, how we eat and how much we eat and so forth. And I, I was pretty surprised by that, the way if you essentially have white food, so if you have potatoes or pasta on a white plate and then another uh, – if you have another experimental group and they're eating potatoes and pasta off a green plate – they would eat significantly less because you have stop signs and cues. And, I see. Um, like Brian Wansick, who wrote Mindless sure, Eating, right, a, a great, lot of great, a, a great research book. on yeah. this topic. And, I mean, they've also looked at the how the size of a bowl matters. So if you give a kid cereal in a large bowl, they will eat twice as much. They did some, some of the real interesting stuff they did. People didn't know they ran out of bottomless bowls. And they ate twice as much soup because it just kept refilling yep. from underneath. So you don't realize how little things like the color and the serving size and basically where your mental attention is at the moment dramatically affect how much you eat. So you can you can you can not eat um mindlessly to use his term by a smaller plates. Right. Okay? Um uh you you can do it by plates whose color contrasts to what you're eating. Mm-hmm. Um you also have an idea. Again, I want to be as pragmatic as possible for the folks out there listening to this. Again, I hope you're walking around when you're listening to this. But you say leave the serving dishes in the kitchen. Right. That You know, that's what's, what's interesting is when you eat uh, by yourself, if you consider that kind of a baseline metric, the more people you add to a table, the more food you eat. So, I mean, it, I guess it's hmm. we, we don't think about it when we're socializing. So that's one part of it. And then there's also just the practicality of if there's a large serving dish in the middle of the table and I'm sitting around with my family, as you sit there and talk, you'll grab a few more Sure, bites, of course. Right? Absolutely. And if you're at a dinner with a big group of people and the food's right there, you'll continue to eat. If you have to stand up and go get another helping, right. there's a little social pressure to say, I'm not going back for second and right. third rounds, right? <laughs> so I, I think you see some of that influence yeah. at work right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so this is what I really like about the book. It's Again, it's called Eat, Move, Sleep. Is um, And I want to focus on the subtitle here, uh, why small choices can make a big difference. So this isn't saying, um, not that there's anything wrong with it, for eating, go become a vegan. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not saying... Um, go on a massive calorie restriction diet. It's not saying eat for five days and fast for two days or anything like that. It's really talking about these very small practical things that we can do that the science tells us can improve our our lives a little bit. Again, we were talking about smaller plates. We're talking about uh, contrasting colors in the plates. Leave the serving dishes um, uh, in 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 the kitchen. Um, You also talk about, um, when you talk about fruit, you talk about Fruit. Eat fruit. Um, you say that you mentioned this earlier. You know, fruit juices are bad, but dried fruit is even worse. So you think it's so crazy because you would go to Whole Foods or some natural food store and oh, dried figs, dried. Mm-hmm. It's so healthy. Let me get a fistful of those. And you're saying no. What should you do instead? Well, you know that it's what's interesting to you. one of your uh, earlier points there. That was my big learning from looking through all this health research is that even in an extreme case like mine where I have all the motivation in the world to try and eat perfectly because sure. I have the ultimate health threat, absolutely, I, I still do not change my behaviors because it might prevent cancer growth several years down the road. And no one skips the cheeseburger because they'll avoid a heart attack 30 years later, right? So the whole trick for me was trying to find some of these little behaviors that essentially help you to get ahead of your own poor decisions, right? So right. That's that was what I learned when you talk about. Like I used to love getting dried fruits or things like that in a grocery store aisle, and I realized that um, the essentially when you get something that's dried, it's taking most of the good nutrients out. So if you have an apple, mm. for example, it takes the fiber out mm-hmm. when you dry it out, um, and you get but those sugars stay in there, and you mm. retain most of the sugar. So. Um, it gives you more sugar than you would get from eating 10 apples if you drink a cup of apple juice. And so the whole form of a fruit essentially slows things down. Yeah. So that's that's helped me to learn that if I make sure it's the whole foods that make it back to my house and not the bag of pretzels and not the dried fruits, then there's almost no chance I'm going to give in right. in a weaker moment, which happens many right. times in a right. given day. What you're talking right? about, and this is interesting in our conversation, it, it, it's, it's being revealed to me, is, is, is a lot of what you're talking about in this book is really the, the what some have called the choice architecture. Mm-hmm. How do you create the architecture of your day to life where you just by default make good choices right. rather than, as we do now, by default make really poor choices? Mm-hmm. So we talked about eating. We've talked about moving. Let's talk about sleep. Let's talk about sleep. 
How much sleep do we need? How much sleep do people need? You know, for 95% of people, it's somewhere between seven and nine hours. Mm-hmm. They're, they're uh, real rare birds, 2.5% who actually can get by on less than seven hours. Mm-hmm. And there are another 2.5% that need more than nine hours. Hmm. But for most people, it's between seven and nine hours. And I think a real quick way to think about it is eight hours of quality sleep yeah. is the ideal goal to shoot for. And um, unfortunately, the average American, I think, is under seven hours a night of good sleep. So. We're a ways off. And what? Uh, well, let's talk about the consequences of that, and then what we do about it. Consequences. So we need eight. Let's say we need an average of eight hours for sleep. The the science on this, according to your research, shows that pretty clearly. Except for that, those outliers. You know, mm-hmm. whatever it is, two, three standard deviations away from the 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 mean. Um, what uh, What are the consequences of people not getting enough sleep? They're, they're, they're more – I was alarmed reading your book. They're more severe than we think. It is. You know, I, I personally had underestimated the um, effect of a good night's sleep greatly. I, I'd grown up with that kind of culture and conventional wisdom of especially all the male role models Absolutely. I looked up to. It was, I only need four hours of sleep, <laughs> and I still closed a deal, and right. I can do this and this and have all the energy in the world. And so that was, that was what I thought and believed and how I kind of lived my life for a long time until I started to get into some of this research. And – it turns out, what surprised me most is if you sleep longer and better, you get more done. Mm-hmm. I used to think if I sleep less, I can get more done. Right. right. And so one thing that struck me right away when I got into this research is if you go back to uh, Kay Anders Erickson's work where, I mean, we've all spent time talking, I'm sure, about the 10,000 hours of deliberate practice yeah. and that versus natural talent and yeah, that yeah. kind of common business debate. But this point in that study that people overlook often is that the top performers across all those professions had almost eight and a half hours of sleep a night. Interesting. So the people yeah. who were performing the best slept longer yeah. and um, had quite a bit more, they took more frequent breaks and had more rest throughout the day. So that's, I think that's probably something that um, both workers and employers need to think about is how do we help people's schedules to work so that they have plenty of time to get a good night's sleep. And then it also starts, I've been learning myself kind of at a, kind of a family level and a friend level of saying, we're going to value sleep Mm. and make sure we get time to do this and kind of build it into the way things work in your home or wherever you live. So how would that, what would that look like um, um, specifically in a, in a family? I know you have two kids, right? Two little kids. Yep. So uh, what what does that look like in a, in a family setting? Is it saying kids have a certain bedtime every night? Is it mom and dad have a certain bed or parents have a certain bedtime every night? Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, for adults and kids, Having a set time when you wake up is incredibly important. I mean, it's so tempting to sleep in on a Saturday or Sunday. Mm-hmm. The reality is you pay for it on Monday, so right. you're kind of shortchanging yourself. And But even at a, at a higher level, I would say it's starting to think about sleep as something that's almost rewarded around the house. I've had to be so uh, careful with my kids to say it's – I mean, when, they, when they're acting up and doing all kinds of crazy things that they shouldn't, which happens all the time, I never say you have to go to bed. Right, mm-hmm. you, you don't you don't want them to I grow see, up uh-huh. thinking that sleep is right. something that you do when you're being bad. Right. right. So, I mean, there's some of those little cultural values into it. Interesting. As well. That's very that's very interesting too. So um, on that point, one of the things that you dislike, I think, with the same ferocity as you dislike bread, is the snooze button. <laughs> What's wrong with the snooze button? Well, you know, as, as I read some of the work on the on kind of good sleep habits and what's worked for people in different occupations and areas. Trying to figure out how they have a set wake-up time that's not disrupted every 10, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Because once that alarm goes off, even if you're hitting snooze, that essentially doesn't count towards the real deep restorative sleep. And the other thing I learned through some of this work is that— So it's not doing you any good. It's not doing—yeah, it, yeah. It, may, it may feel good at the moment, but it's yeah. really not doing you good in terms of setting you up for a better day. Right. And the longer you can have sound sleep and maybe get up at the last second because you didn't hit the snooze button, that— not only helps you to have a better day the next day, but the stuff that's fascinated me perhaps most is the way sleep is so essential just so you can encode and remember and recall what you learned the day before. Sure, sure. Uh, You're listening to Office Hours. Our guest is Tom Rath. Uh, He's the author of a great new book, Eat, Move, Sleep, Why Small Choices Make a Big Difference. Uh, It's Office Hours, so that means that we're going to get invite some other people here into the office. Um, We've got a bunch of questions for Tom. Uh, let's start with, with this one. Uh, it comes from Beth Campbell Duke of 
Fanny Bay, British Columbia. Who knew there's a place called Fanny Bay? Fanny Bay, British Columbia. I'm sure it's a lovely place, as all of BC is. And here's what she writes. She says, I completely agree that we each have a responsibility to ourselves, our families, and our communities to focus on our health. My question is about how we implement the shift toward empowering people to take charge of their health without increasing stress from top-down corporate mandates. I've worked in large companies in the past and have seen how even well-meaning mandates can quickly turn into corporate bullying for compliance, which is especially true in the area of, of health and has the opposite effect of what is supposed to be the intent. So she, she's asking, I guess, a question of, you know, how do we put this in place without it feeling coercive um, and um, so people actually uh, understand why they're doing it. They do it volitionally. They do it with some self-direction rather than in a merely compliant fashion. You know, it's a, that's actually a great question because the one thing that I've learned from studying what's going on in the modern workplace, and I've, I've spent two or three years talking to employers about their health programs, about mm. their wellness programs, and if you ask employers if they're doing things to help improve the health of their workforce, um, 90-plus percent always say yes, mm -hmm. right? But when you ask employees if they have better physical health because of the employer that they work for today, just 7% mm -hmm. strongly agree when we ask that question. Yeah. So I'm surprised it's that high. Yeah, there's, there's a huge disconnect. And when you go back and look at what's happening in a lot of companies today, they the programs in place right now, the most common one is called a health risk appraisal. And if if you could go back in time 20 years and say, what is the worst possible label you could put on a corporate program to make sure nobody participates and nobody wants to do it? It would be to call it a health risk appraisal. Uh -huh. I mean, the whole theme of it makes it sound like this is the company trying to figure out how you're costing us money and creating right. risk. And so it's the it's what most employers are doing today is really not working. The other challenge is... Employers look at health because they pay for the benefits cost here in the United States, at least, and they say, how do we essentially reduce our costs and then give employees incentive for getting healthier and so forth? And it comes in more of a top-down fashion. That's what, that's where, what, what, right. what she's saying. And yeah. that's, that's, I, that can be so off-putting to employees Absolutely. and so invasive that I think we've got to figure out how do we treat this a little bit more like we've done the – a lot of the good work around creating more engagement in organizations mm -hmm. over the last 10 years where it happens one work team at a time. And it's one work team saying, we're going to get together and we're going to do this because it's in all of our best interests. Not only are we all going to save money, which has been an emphasis in the past, but we're going to, we're going to have more energy. We're going to be better parents. We're going to be better spouses. We're going to be better friends as a product of this. That, I mean, if you step back a little bit from that question conceptually, one of the things that I'm trying to spend a lot of time thinking about in the next few years is how do we help employers and employees to meet a much more fundamental compact where there's something in it for the employee just like there's something in it for the organization. I would have kind of naively assumed that people go to work for companies because they think their life will be better off, their health will be better off, they'll have better families and so forth. That is not happening today. Mm. And I think the, the good news is the generation entering the workforce today, they do walk in and say, Am I going to have a good life outside of work if I join this organization? Am I going to be healthier? Am I going to be more involved in my community because my employer cares? And so we've, we need to start working on that one work unit at a time. Yeah, we've got another question from a, from a listener that's sort of related to that. It's from Linda Brandt. She's in Minneapolis. She says to you, Tom, uh, your well-being book isolated career well-being as the most influential element in determining overall well-being. Uh, I think your book, Strength Finder, can help in that area. Do you have any suggestions for anyone who's doing really great career well-being work in workplaces? It's a good question. You know, one of the challenges I've seen is that employers are quick to say, uh, we want to know if our employees are satisfied or engaged with our organization. And it's essentially... What are you bringing to us when you show up at work every day, Mrs. Employee, mm -hmm. right? And I, the reason we called that element career well-being and the reason why it's so important is because that's essentially about do you think your career is on the right track? Do you like what you do when you wake up every day? Those are the questions we were asking people. And I think that's a richer and more valuable conversation to have with employees to say, is your Do you feel like your career is on a better track? Do you like what you do when you show up each day? Do you get to use your strengths every day, which is one of the questions sure. we ask? And so the the best programs that I've seen inside employers 
do help the individual to see what does their path look like? How do they know they're contributing to a bigger mission? How can mm-hmm. they make sure they get to use their strengths every day? And that starts by ensuring that each employee has a manager who really cares about what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. From If I step back to all the kind of 10-year learnings from that research on employee engagement that Gallup's conducted, it's that, you know, if you're going to enter the workforce tomorrow and you're right out of college, spend about 10 times as much time figuring out who you're going to work for and what your boss will look like in comparison to how much time you spend looking at benefits and perks and whether they have dry cleaning or doggy daycare or whatever. (laughs) Another question here, this one uh, related to one of your other books. This is actually for both of us. Uh, It comes from Matt Parker um, from the mean streets of Brooklyn, New York. He says, Tom and Dan, I'm assuming you've both taken StrengthsFinder. Um, I think it's a safe assumption on Tom's part. Um, I've actually taken it too. What were each of your own strengths? So, so uh, Matt wants to know. Uh, I'm willing to reveal too. Uh, Matt wants to know, Tom. What were your strengths when you took StrengthsFinder? Sure, I've I've taken StrengthsFinder so many times in the process and original testing of it and so forth. Um, the ones that really always stick out to me that I build, try and build on every day. The first one's futuristic. So I'm always trying uh-huh. to think about what's out there a little ways down the road in the future. Um, analytical. I think you can. Anyone who's read my books can probably tell I'm kind of a more introverted researcher at heart. Yeah, I yeah, love uh-huh. to get into that stuff. Um, strategic is one thing. I'm kind of trying to figure out how to help some of these findings about the future apply on a day-to-day basis. Um, and relate. I have a theme called relater, which means i very comfortable one-on-one relationships. I don't – one of the things at the bottom of my strengths list is a theme called woo about winning uh, others over. Yeah, interesting. That one's – so that's, it's interesting how there's a distinction there about you can have that relater, but sure. not, the, not the woo over here. Um, and then uh, intellection is the last one. That's what is that of, one? Intellection is all about just kind of sitting and thinking a lot. I it's, see. It's interesting. I have a I have a whole family full of in laws who um, just love to talk, super outgoing. And I'd sit there at a dinner when I first married into the family, and I'd just kind of be sitting there thinking and having a great time with my own thoughts. And they all thought I was not liking the rest of the group. Uh-huh, didn't uh-huh. know what was going on. But I, I mean, I, when I'm Sitting there, kind of thinking through things on my own, I'm in my elements. Nice. That's nice. what that's about. Nice. So, um, so Matt, my my strengths, um, the two that always come up the highest for me are uh, strategic and ideation, um, and then these things I, I think are fairly similar is uh, learner and input, mm-hmm. and um, and I also do fairly well on I guess it's I think it's called activator. Right. Activator. Yep. So I'm not you know, and I don't remember what it is, but the thing that's at the really bottom of my list is whatever the skill is for running stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's organizer or anything like Arranger, that. Arranger, maybe. Arranger, that yeah. could be. It's like my, my the people who know me well tell me <laughs> that I could not organize a one-car parade. Um, so uh, we're heading toward, uh, we're here with Tom Rath. He's the author of Eat, Move, Sleep. You know him from Strength Finder um, and many other great books. Uh, a few more things as we, as we wrap up here. Should we check our email at night, Tom, before we go to sleep? You know, I used to do it every night. It was the last thing I did before I went to bed. It was the first thing I did when I rolled out of bed. Um, so I've got too much experience with that. But it's interesting. I, I didn't realize until I got into the uh, research on sleep in particular that um, not only does checking your email at night uh, lead you to be laying awake 30 minutes later thinking about what you need to do the next day when you might not have needed to be concerned about that, but Little things like the electronic light coming from your phone actually um, suppress your melatonin production yeah. and cause problems, too. So there's some there's some technical things about bright screens, whether it's a television or a laptop or a smartphone at night, mm-hmm. that cause real problems, too. So, Should uh, we be reading Eat, Move, Sleep in the print edition, not on our uh, Kindles and iPads at night? You know, I w- I, I've tried one of those Kindle paper whites, and uh-huh. it has a pretty good— that kind of a dim backlit yeah, screen yeah. seems to work pretty well. And if you're going to use a, any light in a bedroom, it's kind of more of the yellowish dim lights uh-huh. and putting dimmers on your lights seem to make a difference. I didn't realize the difference that spectrums of indoor lighting made in helping us to have a better night's sleep. Or Interesting. in turn, to be more awake during the day. I now have those kind of bright daylight type bulbs in my office during the day, and those hmm. are supposed to help you have more energy and be more alert throughout really? the day. Um, in comparison to a kind of dim evening yellowish light, Interesting. In, the traditional incandescent. Interesting. Um, you don't talk much in the book, uh, in the eat part. You don't talk, at least I don't remember, talking much about, about alcohol. Um, good or bad for us? Um, you know, it's, Please say good. 
I, I the the thing that helped me to kind of get process that as I was working through because I love uh, wine in particular is there there's pretty good health value if you have a glass of uh, red wine and specifically red wine from cooler climates. So if you look at red wine from Oregon, so like okay. Pinot Noir from Oregon, okay, those if you're going to drink something with alcohol, that probably has the most health value in terms of the resveratrol, antioxidants, everything else. Um, out of all the different types of alcohol. And that's one of the things I learned as I was going through. Um, if you have a certain type of chocolate or red wine or things like that that you really enjoy, if you kind of ration yourself and um, indulge in it every few days or once a week or um, on a less frequent basis, you actually get more enjoyment out of it when you do based on some of the experimental research I was looking at. So it's probably uh, good yeah. and fine to do some of those things. Um, as long as you're kind of selective and on occasion and so forth. Right, right. But it's not anything to avoid, but it isn't as if it's some kind of elixir that you need to have a lot of all the time. Right. Um, uh, two, two other quick provocations here before we – a couple more things before we wrap up. Um, this is going to get uh, office hours a lot of uh, hate mail from our, our TV producer friends. Television shortens your lifespan. You know, there's there is a lot of really good television nowadays. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm blown away by the, the series that you can uh, sit down and digest in a, in a few days in a row. So that's that's a tough one. It's interesting if you go back and look at uh, some of the studies on uh, what people enjoy during the day, where you can have a diary your whole day. Yeah, television is moderately enjoyable. It's about ten times as enjoyable as sitting with your boss on average. Um, but the problem is, so many people spend not only uh, an hour, but in many cases, four, five, six hours a day watching television. And um, once you get over two hours a day, it's a pretty good indication that you're sitting way too much. Right. It's, it's interesting. When researchers ask people um, how much they sit in a given day, they do a really poor job of estimating that accurately. Hmm. When you ask people how much television they watch, it's a really good proxy for how much you sit in a given I see, day. I see. So if you want to know how long someone's sitting, ask them how much television they watch, and that's a, a good way to get there. So... For that reason, um, it's good to minimize seated television to two hours a day. Seated television. Seated television. Yeah. If you're watching television while you're up and walking around, if you're watching television while you're on an exercise machine, mm-hmm. it doesn't count against that at all. Not so. I can watch uh, The Simpsons uh, repeats, but I should be biking while I do it. If at all possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, one other thing. I, I find this uh, interesting. Again, um, this book is so interesting. There's so many nuggets that, that are just part, you know, that we like to talk about it uh, uh, at the dinner table, leaving, of course, the serving dishes in the kitchen. Um, it, it says, a Swedish study found that couples in which one partner has a commute longer than 45 minutes are a whopping 40% more likely to get divorced. Mm-hmm. So... You know, it's it's one of the things when you look at – I follow the field of behavioral economics really closely. And when you look at how people choose to spend their money, as a society, we've made a pretty large error over the last uh, two decades in particular. When you look at the way um, most people have valued more space, bigger homes mm-hmm. over – um, the downside of a long commute. Right. And now there's a lot of good research emerging. I, I just uh, read a book while I was on vacation this summer, uh, Happy Money, that's got a lot of the, yeah, some of the book. very best research about yeah. how you spend your money. Right. And spending money on housing, spending your money on cars, is actually not the best use if you're trying to create enjoyment with your money, right? Whereas spending money to have a shorter commute might have a pretty big payoff. Mm-hmm. It seems that once you get over 30 minutes each way, one way in a given day for your everyday routine, that can cause a lot of issues. So, I mean, one solution to that is to try and figure out, I mean, whether it's driving at off times or better yet, how can you have at least a day or two out of a week where you're telecommuting potentially? Right. Because some of the, it's interesting, some of the new research I just saw um, in a Gallup report in the last few months suggests that people who commute one or two days a week have or sorry people people who telecommute one or two days a week so they're working from home a couple of days out of the week actually have higher engagement than people who are in the office five days out of the week so that helps a little bit if you're uh, telecommuting every day of the week you lose some of the relationship yeah. components and things start to go back downhill but there's we need to think about the balance there and prioritize less time in a car in the frame of reference that Less time in a car is more time with the people you care about. Right. 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 Uh, I'm going to give um, 
our listeners the last word. We have a, and Tom the last word here. We have a question from Judy Merriman. She's in San Francisco. She says, what's the role of schools in bringing about the healthier choices that Tom seems to be advocating in his book? It's, it's an outstanding question and one that it, it's good to see a lot of people um, in the educational K-12 world in particular starting to think about and addressing right now because it's at that young age where all these kind of long-term habits are set in motion where if you do something good, you get a treat. A treat is usually a lollipop. It's usually ice cream, right? And it's, we kind of encode these habits and preferences. And um, the unfortunate thing is we're also encoding diabetes and obesity <laughs> unintentionally when we do that. And um, I, I alluded to this earlier, but what's alarming to me uh, as a as an American, what's alarming to me is the fact that you can now see when you look at the World Health Organization's data how childhood obesity in Mexico and in wealthy Middle Eastern countries where we've essentially exported and plugged in a lot of our core food products and drinks is rising at rates that are much, much higher than the United States right now. And the U.S. has always been the worst. And so I I do think we have a responsibility in our schools and businesses, but also kind of to the rest of the world to figure out what are the right solutions to fix the problem that we founded or started there. Uh-huh. And so what, what, what's one thing that, uh, to Judy's question, what's, um, is there anything that schools can do? Is it changing the, the offerings at lunchtime? Is they're, it, they're amazing things. Is it things. not getting rid of recess? I mean, give, me, give us some specifics. Yeah, those, yeah those, that's a, those are two real important specifics. Yeah. One is that if kids have at least an hour a day to move and be active and be outside and have physical activity, they're better learners throughout mm-hmm, the day. Mm-hmm. So do that for learning, and it also helps diabetes and obesity and everything yeah. else, right? So we need to fix that and build activity back in. Like when I was young, I had at least an hour a day of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then from a food standpoint, a lot of it starts with education, where the first thing, I mean, it's the same thing Google does, and I've seen schools do it, where the first thing you see when you walk into a cafeteria are the healthy options and it tells you why they're healthy, and they have big signs and campaigns around them, just like the candy bars do, and to either hide and minimize the less healthy options or, in some cases, just kick them out of the building. Yeah. I mean, if you look at how we fixed smoking, mm-hmm. if you look at how we fixed littering, if you look at how we fixed re- recycling to a large degree, we essentially just shoved it out of the social networks one network at a time, right? And and it was painful when we were doing it. I, I still remember the days when people were complaining about um, not being able to use paper cups. They were complaining about not being able to smoke outside mm-hmm. the building or on the property. And that always creates some consternation. But um, personally, I think we, we owe it to future generations to kind of help nudge people towards uh, healthier choices, especially in our school system today. It's right, a great question. Uh, and a great way to, to end. Uh, we've been talking with Tom Rath. He's the author of this great new book, uh, all kinds of great takeaways and things. My copy is, is dog-eared and underlined, and, and no joke, uh, 80% of the Pink family has read this book now. So um, that's pretty good. That might be a record <laughs> for, for any, kind of, any kind of book. The book is Eat, Move, Sleep. Why Small Choices Make a Big Difference. We've been talking with Tom Rath. Um, he's the author. He also wrote Strength Finder. Um, Tom, where can people find out more about the book and you? Uh, find out more about the book on TomRath.org or uh, the book's website, EatMoveSleep.org. Okay. And uh, to summarize the book in six words, uh, it's, it tells you how to eat right, move more, and sleep better, something that's going to make us um, better off and probably just better in general. Uh, that's it for Office Hours. Thanks for being with us. Uh, if you've missed an episode, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, but you can find previous episodes on iTunes or on danpink.com. Thanks for listening.